You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual We usually play listener comments, listener feedback at the end of the show, but I'm going to make an exception today. This was the first call we got last Tuesday after the show went out. Hey, Dan, it is May 3rd, and I am so glad that your intro didn't get into politics, did not talk about what's going on with the leaked Alito uh, Roe decision and all the other horrible crap that's going on in the world. I am so tickled that you started off with OED and pegging and pissed and cunt. I cannot tell you. It is such a relief from the horrors of this awful time that we're living through. Thank you so very much. We started with the OED and pegging and pissed and cunt last week, not to show some sort of restraint, not to give our listeners a break, but because we record the intro to the Lovecast on Monday mornings and the SCOTUS leak of the Roe decision written by Alito, repealing Roe, scrapping Roe, rescinding Roe, that leaked Monday night. If I had been able to get back into the podcast box late Monday night to record an intro that was all about abortion, I would have. So I'm sorry to say to you, caller, I am going to get into politics, top of this show this week, just a little. I'll try to be brief and then we'll Get to the show, your questions, my answers, a diverting sex scandal. A couple of guests not here to talk about abortion. If you want to hear more about what I think about abortion, more about abortion at length, then you're a Magnum Savage Lovecast subscriber. You can listen to last week's Sex and Politics with Dr. Stacey DeLynn. S&P is a special bonus podcast I'm doing now for Magnum subs. If you're not a Magnum subscriber and you want to hear that, become a Magnum subscriber today at savage.love. All right, two things I really want to quickly address. This bit of misinformation that's flying around is kind of driving me nuts. Well, it's not exactly misinformation, but it's information so partial that it rises to the level of misinformation. Restrictions on abortion in countries lefties usually admire for their progressive social policies. Bill Maher brought it up on Real Time last Friday. Like in Europe, the modern countries of Europe, way more restrictive than we are or what they're even proposing. If you are pro-choice, you would like it a lot less in Germany and Italy and France and Spain and Switzerland. And Nellie Bowles brought it up on the TGIF podcast also last Friday. I was talking to a friend earlier this week, and she is pro-life, and she was saying, you know, honestly, I'd settle for for Denmark's abortion laws. And I kind of paused for a second, so I was like, but wouldn't Denmark's abortion laws be much more progressive? But I looked it up and I had no idea about this. So in Denmark, Finland, Greece, Ireland, Italy, I'm, I'm literally reading through lists, abortion on request is banned after 12 weeks. Of course, in the case of danger to the mother, you can have an abortion later. But it's banned at 14 weeks for France and Germany, Spain, at 16 weeks in Austria, at 18 weeks in Sweden. These are dates that would sound incredibly conservative to an American. And yet Europeans have figured out that this is actually what works in terms of a compromise between the right and the left to to get an abortion protection law on the books. Here's what didn't get said on Real Time or on TGIF. Wished I'd been on the Real Time panel that night. I would have said it. This hasn't been said anywhere else that I've seen this point 
raised in the last week. Yes, France and Denmark and Germany have abortion restrictions that kick in at 12 or 14 weeks. You know what else those countries have? France and Denmark and Germany and every other country on that list? Socialized medicine, comprehensive sex education, free and universal access to birth control, and abortions paid for by the state. Oh, and paid time off. Women in those countries who think they might be pregnant because their state-subsidized birth control might have failed them, they can take a day off work without losing their jobs and see their doctor that they already have, because they have socialized medicine, for free. And if they're pregnant, get an abortion that day for free. Ending abortion, controlling women's bodies, banning IUDs and Plan B, all of that is on the table here right now. You know what's not on the table here right now? You know what conservatives aren't putting on the table here right now? Medicare for all and free birth control and free abortions. And then maybe abortion restrictions that kick in after 14 or 16 weeks with broad exceptions to save the life of the mother, broad exceptions for the health of the mother, including the mother's mental health. That's what they've got in France and Germany and Denmark. And that's not what conservatives and Republicans are proposing for women in the United States. This is going to get worse before it gets better. And it's going to be a long struggle. The right fought to overturn Roe for 50 years. We're not going to win one midterm election or one presidential election and set this right. And you know what? We really do have to borrow a page from the right. They didn't give up when they didn't get their way after electing Reagan and then Reagan again, and then Bush senior and then Bush junior and then Bush junior again, and then Trump. They fought for 50 years. If we give up because we don't get what we want as quickly as we want it, we'll never get what we want, what we deserve, what women deserve autonomy and control of their own bodies and their own destinies. And I got to say, I read Alito's draft, all of it. There's a distinction he attempts to draw between abortion rights and the right to use birth control, which in the last week, Republicans have already signaled they're coming for, coming for birth control. And the right, Alito attempts to draw a similar distinction between the right to have sex with whoever you want, the right to enter into a legal same-sex marriage. And it's extremely flimsy if you read the decision. It's an aside. Abortion is unconstitutional, Alito argues, because it violates our history and traditions. There are other things that some would argue also violate our histories and traditions that are currently constitutional and rooted in the same right to privacy that Alito has declared not a part of our history and traditions in his effort, in their effort, the five of those motherfuckers on the Supreme Court, they're seemingly looking like it's going to be a successful effort to overturn Roe. And Alito says in his decision, oh, don't worry about these other rights to interracial marriage, to same-sex marriage, to contraception, to not being arrested for having sex with somebody in your own house in privacy because that person you're having sex with is a member of your same sex. We shouldn't have to worry about those things or don't worry about those things because, because why? Not because they're rooted in a right to privacy, like Roe, but because they're not abortion. He's arguing in his decision that you can't compare these other rights to abortion rights because they're not abortion. Only abortion is abortion. So nothing to see here. We're not coming for your birth control, although they are, or plan B, although they already are. We're not going to dissolve your lesbian sister's marriage or arrest your gay nephew. We swear. 
It has the whiff, what Alito says in that decision. It has the whiff. It has the stench of Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Barrett's assurances during their confirmation hearings that Roe was settled law. They lied. Susan Collins was a fool to believe them, if indeed she believed them at all. And now they're overturning Roe and Casey. Alito is lying here. He is lying in that decision, that draft of the decision. He's lying, just like Gorsuch and Kavanaugh lied during their confirmation hearings. He's lying on his own behalf, and he's lying on behalf of the court's conservative majority. And you would be a fool to believe what amounts to a mollifying aside in Alito's decision about Griswold, which legalized contraception, or Lawrence, which legalized sodomy, gay and straight, or Obergefell, which legalized same-sex marriage. You would be a fool to believe that that aside in this coming decision is going to restrain them. They threw out 50 years, 49 years of precedent to scrap Roe, that they'll ignore and aside in Alito's decision, scrapping Roe and Casey on their way to overturning Griswold and Lawrence and Obergefell? Yeah. If you don't believe they would do that, you haven't been paying attention. All right, coming up on today's show, we've got a couple of guests on the Micro and Magnum. I welcome our new UK correspondent, Rachel Cunliffe, senior editor of The New Statesman, to talk about a sex scandal that rocked the House of Commons, a sex scandal that involves and probably a tractor. And on the Magnum, Sarah Dysek returns to help a listener who wonders if there's such a thing as a quiet vibrator. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy At-Risk Youth. I am in the middle of a two-week visit with my in-laws. They're staying with my husband and I, and I am like at my wit's end, and I don't know what to do. (laughs) You know, they probably come to visit us once a year. They stay for about two weeks. Last year, they stayed for three weeks, and I set a hard boundary that that was too long and that two weeks is more than enough time. And I feel so guilty because they are like lovely, lovely people. And I, so I don't understand why I just cannot take it anymore. So many people out there have in laws that are like Trump supporters or evangelical Christians or emotionally, physically abusive, you know, and my, my in-laws are like progressive, run-of-the-mill, East Coast kind of neurotic Jews. <laughs> and they do a lot around our house when they're here. You know, they are very handy and very talented in the kitchen. And I'm not a great hostess when it comes to cooking for everybody. And my husband and I both have really demanding jobs with long hours. And so we just feel like we don't have time to do that. And so, you know, we provide all of the other comforts that we can, (laughs) you know, I set up their room really nicely for them and they're, and they have their own bathroom while they're here, which is so luxurious, but it's just something about having somebody else in your space for that long. And they really like to do everything together all the time. And, you know, he also, the two, my husband and I are introverts and, you know, his parents are definitely extroverts. His brother and 
sister-in-law and their two kids are extroverts and they are not staying with us, but they live in our same city. So whenever the parents come in and visit, everyone ends up kind of hanging out at our house because we have the most space and they're just sort of here all the time and the kids sleep over and stay, you know, stay all weekend. And it's just so much. And I literally find myself like fantasizing about getting divorced when this happens. (laughs) I'm like, You know, I'm able to steal away like an hour here and there to just sit in my room, just away from everybody, just like doing whatever I can to recharge. And I'm literally like Googling apartments and like seeing how much it would cost if I wanted to like get my own place. I mean, it's like absolutely ridiculous. And it makes me feel so guilty because I feel like this is just a normal everyday life thing that that's like a cliche and a trope that people joke about, but people just deal with. And whenever this happens and they descend upon us, I feel like my life is over for like two weeks and it, I, I'm just absolutely miserable. I guess I'm just wondering, is this normal? Does Do other people feel this way? Do I need to like go to therapy about this? Uh, please, I would love, love, love your thoughts, Dan. I'm an introvert too. Dinner, getting through an entire meal with the in-laws in the house for me is kind of a trial. Just dinner, I have to slip away now and then. And every once in a while, Terry has to pop upstairs and tell me I need to come back down. So yeah, some people have the in-laws come and stay for two or three weeks or a month at a time. God bless those people. I'm not one of those people. Seems to me that if your in-laws are lovely, understanding, kind, compassionate people, you should be able to be honest with them about who you are and what works for you. If that's not something you could do, if it would really hurt their feelings, if your husband would get really upset with you, if you just said to them, look, you can come for the weekend, you can't come for two or three weeks, or if you come for two or three weeks, you're going to have to get a hotel room because I need some time every day where the door shuts and I am with my husband. We are the only people in our space. You can't say that. Well, then maybe you need to run a little bit of interference for yourself. If they're coming for the allotted two weeks, which is already one week less than they would like to come for, maybe you conspire with your husband that in that two-week period, you're going to have a work thing that you can't get out of that's taking you out of town, a conference for three or four or five days. So you were seeing your in-laws for three or four days on either side of your business trip that couldn't possibly be rescheduled and that coincidentally and conveniently enough keeps getting, keeps happening. You keep having to have these business trips when they're in town, if you can't be honest with them. But yeah, you're going to need to do something about this with your husband's help. If when his parents are, are in town, you're contemplating divorce and hunting for apartments on apartment finder or Craigslist or houses on Zillow so you can get away from your husband forever so that you're never ever going to have to be with his in-laws or his parents at all. That's a problem. And it's a problem that you and your husband are going to have to solve together. Hi, Dan, the tech savvy at risk youth. I'm a 44 year old bi male in a monogamish relationship with my gay cisgendered male fiance. And we live in London, England. We've been together for the past eight years, and we'll be getting married this summer. I'm a top, he's a bottom, and we still have the hottest sex ever. However, there's something about our sex that I need some insight from you, or perhaps from the bottom listeners out there, for some peace of mind. I have never seen my partner come, and it's racking me with guilt. 
I've always tried to give him an orgasm, but he does not like any contact with his dick. He will ask me to focus on his ass. His cock doesn't even get hard during sex. All of our foreplay is focused on my cock and his ass, along with body massage and nipple play. He squirms and is very vocal when I eat, play with his ass and fuck him. While fucking him, he often goes into convulsions, which he tells me are his orgasms. Nothing ever happens with his cock. I'm an ass man, so I'm getting the satisfaction I need, and despite having conversations with him on why he doesn't want his cock to ever come into play and insists he's being satisfied, I have this guilty voice in my head telling me that I am being selfish. I hear your voice, Dan. Use your words. We've talked about this many times, and despite this being all he says he needs, sometimes I ruminate in my head that I'm doing something wrong and that I'm being selfish. It may give me some peace if I knew that guys like this really exist. Are there any cisgendered men out there who have had no desire to get their cocks into play? I've never encountered anyone like this in my sexual history. Huh. I would call you back if I had your phone number. Because I have a couple of questions. For instance, does your fiancé ever ejaculate? Does he masturbate on his own? Can he get hard with and for himself? Maybe that's relevant. Maybe that's not. You know, because if part of what's the problem here for you is that you take pleasure, as so many, you know, guys into sex with other guys do, take pleasure in seeing your partner get hard, get off, ejaculate. You know, one of the things that you're not getting out of this relationship is the satisfaction of your partner blowing a load down your throat, of your partner blowing a load all over your face, of your partner coming, ejaculating, having a penile orgasm and not an anal orgasm while you're fucking him or being fucked by your partner until he comes in you or pulls out and comes on you. So it's not just, you know, that your partner doesn't get hard, your partner doesn't come it's not just he's missing out on some things that you value about sex. It's also possible that you are missing out on some things that with other guys you enjoy in your relationship with your, your future husband. All that said, you know, of course I'm going to tell you to use your words. You have used your words. What you're not doing here is allowing your partner to use his words or believing him when he uses his words You guys have been together for eight years. Sounds like you have a pretty good sexual relationship. It sounds like your partner isn't just grinning and bearing it for your sake and not enjoying the sex that you have. I can't imagine that he's been faking these convulsions. They, you know, these waves of whatever comes over him when you're fucking him that he describes as his anal orgasm, his butt orgasm. I can't imagine that he could successfully fake that for eight years. If it was an act, he either would have grown tired of it himself by this point, or you would have seen through it, but you haven't. So you've used your words again and again and again. You've asked and asked and asked. He's told you, he's used his again and again and again, and told you that this is how he enjoys sex. And he has, and you know, during sex quite clearly again and again and again over these eight years, enjoyed himself and enjoyed you. So at a certain point, you're going to have to just take him at his word. You're going to have to take yes for an answer. Yes. The sex you have with your future husband works for him and he enjoys it. 
And then you're going to have to grieve and get over what he doesn't bring to the table and accept that this is what sex with this man looks like. Again, my original opening follow-up question for you, does he come when he's on his own? Does he jerk off ever? That seems relevant. Is there something about being in a room with another person that chases his erections away? Does he enjoy sex with you and later jack off about the sex that he had with you? Does he ever ejaculate? That's, I think, germane. If he's capable of doing that when he's not in the room with you, when he's alone, seems to me that you should be able to find a way to tiptoe up to him being hard and maybe coming with you in the apartment with the doors closed and you not in the room with him and then maybe in the room with him, with him wearing a blindfold, but you not touching him or even getting in the bed and being really quiet so he kind of forget you're there and then you in the bed maybe holding him while he comes if indeed he's capable of achieving and sustaining an erection and having an orgasm, a dick orgasm. Clearly, he's capable of having those anal orgasms. Hey, Dan. So I just had the do you want to have children talk with the guy I'm seeing. And I told him I want kids one day, but I don't want to give birth, meaning I'm totally open to foster or adoption at any age. And he said I lied on the app about wanting them. I told him I didn't lie, that he assumed by wanting kids it meant giving birth to those kids. When he asked why, I told him about how I've had issues with my body image and the thought of gaining and trying to lose all that weight terrified me. I also told him how I didn't want to risk a collapsed bladder, gestational diabetes, mastitis, literally tearing myself apart down there, and the list goes on. He said it was selfish of me, and I told him how can it be selfish when he would never have to put his body through that. I've talked to my girlfriends, and some of them have said I should just lie and say medically I can't have kids but I don't want to start a relationship off with a lie like that. What do you think? Should I just lie or keep going with the truth? I think you should go with the truth, but you need to go with the whole truth. When you are on a dating app as a woman and you say that you're open to having kids, guys who also want to have kids are going to make the very reasonable assumption that what you mean is what most people mean by that, that you're open to having your own biological children with a future romantic partner. That is not the case. And so, yeah, technically you told the truth, but, you know, in actual practice, it's not like you misled him. Well, maybe you misled him a little bit. You allowed him, the guy who got upset and said you weren't telling the truth, you allowed him to make a reasonable assumption that in your particular case is not an accurate assumption. So... You need, if you don't want to get into these sorts of situations with other guys in the future who are very likely to make this same reasonable assumption based on your being open to, quote, having kids, if you don't want to have another ugly conversation like this, you need to make it abundantly clear that what you mean by wanting to have kids is that you want to adopt. I don't think you should lie and say that you're incapable of having children because then you're going to get a lot of questions from the guys you date about why you're so diligent about using birth control or requiring them to use condoms if you're physically incapable of biologically having children. I guess you could spin the lie out and say that you could get pregnant, but it would be too risky for you to get pregnant, and so you have to use birth control. But uh, what an effort to lie in that way and dissemble. No, no, don't. Tell the full truth in such a way that no one is going to make a reasonable but an accurate assumption in your case. You're looking for a romantic partner and you want to form a family, but you do not want to have or cannot have 
because you don't want to have biological children of your own. So you're looking for someone who already has kids. You say you're open to foster and adopt at any age. You could become a step parent. You're open to dating somebody who already has children or you're open to dating somebody who would like to one day foster and adopt or adopt as you would like to. You know, what you're doing is a little bit like the person who's already got a spouse at home, but is an open or polyamorous relationship, asking someone out on a date or going out on a few dates without disclosing that they're already married to someone else. When you ask somebody out on a date, when you express romantic interest in someone and they don't know that about you, they're going to make the reasonable assumption that, you know, you want to go out on a date. You're interested in them romantically, that you, you're being auditioned for primary partner, that this is potentially a relationship that could go somewhere, maybe to marriage, which is why people who already have spouses need to tell people not just the truth. The truth is I would like to date you, but the full truth. I would like to date you. I'm polyamorous. I already have a wife. That's the full truth. When you say to somebody, I want to date you, you allow them to make the reasonable but inaccurate, in your case, if you're poly and you already have a spouse, assumption that you're free and unencumbered, not entangled, not in any other romantic, much less committed relationship. It's manipulative when we let people make assumptions about us that they're likely to make, that we know they're likely to make, and that we know are inaccurate and that we know might cause that person or prompt that person not to want to date us in the first place. It's a shitty thing to do. Don't do shitty things. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old lesbian living in Los Angeles. I met another woman on a dating app. We got a drink. There was a lot of chemistry between us. So we agreed that our next date would be that she would come over to my house and we would bang. Like that was pretty clear. We're texting throughout the week before the planned hookup. She seems really great, very mature. She's a few years older than me, which I like. She initiates a conversation about STI testing, and we're having this pre-negotiation about the hookup. I think all of this is fantastic, and um, she seems to have a really good sense of boundaries and communication and transparency and things like that. Anyway, the day before the planned date, she asks me whether it would be hot for me if we took pictures or videos during our scene that she could later show to her boyfriend, quote, for his sexy jealousy and our enjoyment. I hadn't mentioned this before, but she's polyamorous, like I am, and she has a boyfriend, which I knew before. I told her that it would be the opposite of hot, and then she responded, I hope I didn't offend you by asking. And I said that I was very surprised and that I thought it was a miscalculation of her to ask this, because she knows that I'm gay and I can't imagine how I would be able to feel present during our bang session if, you know, we were orienting uh, our pleasure around this dude and his, quote, sexy jealousy, you know, like, quote, unquote, for him. She was a little bit defensive and she said that the performative element of girl and girl action for the male gaze totally grosses her out, to which I responded, like, how is this different than that, you know, if we're making content for her boyfriend? Anyway, she ended up having to uh, cancel the day of for totally legitimate, unrelated reasons and seems to still want to get together. And honestly, I was a little bit relieved that she canceled because I wasn't sure after this interaction if I still wanted to have the hookup. And guess, so I guess I'm calling to get your take on this 
should I go with my pussy, which still really wants to bang her. I think she's like super attractive and compelling in other ways. And I really wanted this up until now. Or should I listen to my gut, which is totally kind of squicked out um, by this interaction and upset that she would think that I, as a gay woman, would want to take pictures or videos during our first hookup that she could show to her her boyfriend. I might be a, the wrong person to ask this question of because I was in a very similar circumstance once. Really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, there was uh, this opposite-sex couple, and the husband was bi but had never really been with guys before. And the wife kind of set us up, and she asked if Terry and I, we had a three with him, if Terry and I would like send her some pics and video as it happened. And we agreed, and we did, and it was fun. Wow. So do you think that I'm overreacting? I don't know. I think you might be overreacting in that you don't want to get with this woman now because she asked, made this request. You know, she asked. She didn't, like, spring it on you at the moment. So you weren't under pressure while, you know, the sex was already underway and you would have felt awkward calling it off or might not wanted to call it off because you were enjoying it. She asked in advance and you said no and she dropped it, right? Yes, definitely. Um, I think she was a little bit offensive. I'm I'm sorry, defensive. She said, you know, I'm not into, you know, um, the idea of like women performing for the male gaze. And I was like, well, like, isn't that what this is here? Well, Um, it's not like for all men everywhere. It's for like, it's not for the male gaze. It's for this man's gaze. Right. And the thing about sending pics and videos, especially if they have any sort of like, you know, hot girlfriend, hot wife or cuckoldy thing going is it's a way of involving that other person, even as they're not involved. And it's only a little bit like you, I think sometimes when somebody says, Oh, I want to like take some pics or video for my partner at home. The person who got on the receiving end of that ask, which was you thinks we're This is going to be a porn shoot the whole time. We're messing around. We're going to be like fiddling with cameras and taking videos. And it is just going to be a performance. And in my personal experience with exactly this sort of thing, it's a couple of snaps and maybe a short video and then you get back to the focus not being on the person who's not in the room, but the focus being entirely uh, on the people who are in the room. Still, dudes messing around with dudes doesn't exist in a context of you know women having to perform for men, for men's pleasure, centering men, or that you know I kissed a girl and I liked it kind of girl-on-girl action expressly or explicitly or exclusively to excite some fucking guy. And I can understand why Mm -hmm. that's a higher bar or more like, you have a sensitivity to that as a lesbian. I totally get it. But I got to say, from personal experience, having done almost this exact thing with all the genders reversed, it was a blast. I'm so glad you had fun. But I mean, also like the person that was receiving this media in your case was a bi man, right? No, it was, like a, it, was a, it was a bi woman. Oh, it was a bi woman. Oh, I see. So that's interesting. Yeah. Cause for me, I was like, I was shocked cause I was like, what about me makes you think that I would want to do this? You know, like, um, that it seemed kind of misplaced, um, in a way, cause our, I'm not interested in men at all, which she, you know, obviously knows. Right. Um, yeah, that may, oh, I'm not interested yeah. in women at all. And yet, yeah, right. I knew, okay, wow. I knew that wow. the woman getting these pics and videos from me and Terry tag teaming her husband, I knew she was masturbating <laughs> when she got those videos. She told us she was, and we were like, 
yeah, we're just creating a little bit more joy in this world. And yeah, she didn't wow. then show up, knock on the door. She had no expectations that, you know, we as gay men would then want to have a four-way with them. But like, you know, we literally, I mean, we figuratively were throwing her a bone. You would be literally throwing this guy, I guess his own bone, at this moment, if you yeah. are up for it, but you know, you don't have to be up for it just because Terry and I were up for it. It was yeah. fun for us. doesn't mean you have to be up for it. If it squicks you out, don't do yeah. it. Yeah. The only thing I do want to tell you as an advice giver not to do is if you want to talk with this woman and you're both partnered in Polly, she asked, you said, no, she said, fine. She dropped it. Go ahead and hook up with her. Don't, you know, punish her for having an ask. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I mean, I actually, to be clear, I'm not partnered, actually. I'm oh, single. Um, oh, I thought you were partnered. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I'm I'm newly single as of like a month ago. So I guess also um, kind of um, re-entering the uh, hookup world. This was sort of shocking to me in a way, I guess. I mean, there are other reasons why you might not be comfortable doing this. Yeah. Like, who is this yeah. guy? Can you trust this guy? You exactly, know. yeah. He's a stranger. He's a stranger, right. yeah. Where are these pics and videos going to go? Exactly. But it's good to hear that you think that, I mean, because I've been really weighing, like, do I want to pursue um, this hookup still? And I've been really torn about it because I think she's really fantastic and compelling and like super hot um, <laughs> other than um, other than this. So it's, it's good to hear that you think that this isn't necessarily like the hugest red red flag. Right. And what you say to her is like, yeah, he can't watch. I'm not comfortable with the videos, but you can tell him all about it. There's other ways to tweak yeah. his jealousy if this is kind of a cuckoldy thing than yeah, right. us coming through with pics or video. That's a good point. Okay. Okay. I feel I feel better. I was very tormented about this. Um, um, but as more time has gone on, I'm starting to get like kind of more excited about maybe going for this still um, and not letting this deter me. So um, thank you so much for sharing your <laughs> unexpected. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble for it. Terry doesn't like me to talk about our shit, but it just seemed too relevant to, to not fess up. Too, too relevant. Yeah, for sure. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, have fun and give us a call back. Let us know how it goes. <laughs> Will do. Bye. Thanks. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with the Savage Lovecast's new UK correspondent, Rachel Cunliffe, Senior Associate Editor of The New Statesman. Hey, Rachel, welcome to the show. Hi, Dan. Uh, I wanted to talk with you about a sex scandal that just played out in the UK that rocked Britain. I love sex scandals. We need our sex scandals at a time like this. Who was it? What happened? <laughs> it was an MP who you probably never heard of, uh, at least not not before the last couple of weeks. Neil Parrish, Conservative MP for Tiverton and Honiton, who was revealed uh, after a, a week when we were wondering who it was to have been the MP who was caught watching porn on his phone in the House of Commons chamber on uh, at least two occasions. we got to stop right there because I think a lot of my listeners may not know what an MP is. Ah, uh, like a congressman. A member of parliament. Yes. Now, as far as I'm concerned, anywhere there are men and anywhere there are men with smartphones and anywhere there are men with smartphones and a signal, some of those men are going to be looking at porn, even at work, and maybe one or two women too. How is this such a big scandal? And why is it a bigger problem than than my initial reaction made it made it feel like for me? Sure. Um, so the issue isn't that he was watching porn on his smartphone. As you say, men watch porn. This is this is not news. It's not even for me that he was watching porn at work when you might have hoped that he was dealing with confronting any of the thousands of problems that the UK is currently facing, like taking a break to watch porn 
point. It's that he was doing it in the House of Commons chamber, which is a very crowded space. There isn't actually enough space for, for all the members of parliament to be in there at the same time, um, where he must have known there was a very high risk, in fact, almost a certainty that he would be seen by his colleagues, in particular, his female colleagues. And I have been uh, listening to the show for long enough to know that if, if you do that, it's not because you're addicted to, to porn and have to watch it every second of the day, anywhere you go. It's because you're actively getting off on the discomfort uh, and the unease and the shock and the shame of the, the female colleagues who, who see you doing it. And you're sending a very clear message that you have impunity and can act however you want and that the, the comfort and respect of, of your colleagues isn't really something that you think is important. Um, now, the, the context for this and the reason this story actually came out when it did is because the Conservative MPs were having a meeting about um, how female MPs felt and the sexism they faced. And the reason they were having that meeting is because one of our tabloid newspapers ran a story which said that uh, a different female MP, uh, who's, who's a Labour MP, a member of the opposition, um, had been distracting our Prime Minister by the audacious crime of uh, crossing and uncrossing her legs and that there was absolutely no way that the Prime Minister could be expected to stay focused and concentrate when, when she was doing this. And obviously, that's an incredibly sexist story. And that's why they had the meeting to discuss sexism and misogyny in Parliament. And it was at this meeting that two separate female MPs said, yeah, I've spotted this guy doing this. It's not great, is it? And he did it more than once. Yeah, he did it more than once. Um, his excuse, this is great, by the way, um, the first time was an accident. He was Googling tractors and accidentally ended up on an adult website. I would love to hear from your listeners how how they think that, that happened. Um, there's been some speculation that he was Googling a type of tractor, a type of combine harvester called the Dominator. Now, I've, I've tried to retrace his Google steps. Uh, I can't do it. If it was called the Dominatrix combine harvester, maybe. Um, but I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'd buy that as an excuse. And then he admitted that the second time he liked the tractor porn so much, he, he went on and, and sorted it out and did it again. Okay, that's a little hard. I don't know how you get from Googling tractors to watching porn <laughs> on the floor of the House of Commons. And it isn't that the House of, you know, the floor of the House of Commons is such a sacred space that nobody could ever look at porn there. It is about the double standard of the conservatives accusing a liberal member of parliament of trying to distract the prime minister a la Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct by crossing and uncrossing her legs at the same time that their own conservative members are making sounds like conservative members of parliament who are women feel uncomfortable on that packed floor by watching porn without giving a shit that they're going to be observed. Exactly. Um, it, it's for a bit of context, uh, 56 members of parliament um, of, of various parties, but maybe 10%. Uh, are currently under investigation for sexual misconduct. There have been some very high-profile cases of Conservative MPs recently. Uh, one of them sexually assaulted uh, an aide. There have been other accusations of uh, harassment of, of staff. It's an ongoing scandal. We even have a word for it, Pestminster, uh, as opposed to Westminster. Um, <laughs> and it, it really is a part of a toxic culture that makes a lot of women very reluctant to go into politics, either as politicians themselves or even as political journalists because the culture is telling them that they don't really deserve to be there uh, and that if there are men who act in quite horrendous ways, there won't be any consequences for them. I don't mean to laugh uh, at Pestminster. It's just a play on words. It's good, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's really good because sex pest is kind of a Britishism 
for someone who's a sexual harasser at work or just annoying about sex or won't shut up about sex. But it kind of encompasses everything from somebody who's just, you know, telling you too much about their weekend to somebody who's rubbing up against you in the elevator as a sex pest. So Westminster is what people in the UK call Congress, basically, the seat of government, Westminster. So Westminster made me laugh. I don't mean to make it sound like I think it's funny that there's so much sexual harassment going on uh, in the House of Parliament. Yeah, uh, and it's it's a real issue. Um, and I think that needs to be the the focus of what we do after this story. There have been uh, lots of talk about how porn is the problem and um, how can men help themselves when we live in such a porn-soaked culture. And I don't think that's the issue at all. I know lots of men, they're all very capable of watching porn in their own time, in their own private spaces, and not drawing uh, unsuspecting, unwilling women into whatever fantasies they're having because they get off on the fact that they can do this with impunity and the women can't say no. One last thing about this scandal that I thought was interesting is this member of parliament whose name I've already forgotten and we can all forget. Neil Parrish. Neil Parrish. (laughs) His wife came to his defense. Yeah, she did. Uh, But it was quite an odd defense. She said, you know, obviously, you know, it wasn't it wasn't great. Wish she hadn't done it fine. Um, but then she basically said, it takes two to tango. You know, I don't like this content, but the women are posing in the content. So essentially, what can he do? And it was just such an odd defense that the idea that because pornography is being made, uh, he has no choice or he's totally helpless in having to watch it in the first place and also having to watch it in a very inappropriate place. So again, uh, that that blurring of what the issue is. The issue, I just want to be very clear on this, is not that an MP watched porn. Uh, it's that an MP didn't have the professional sense and respect to not do it in front of uh, of his colleagues and not make them part of his, his porn tractor fantasy. Rachel Cunliffe, Senior Associate Editor of the New Statesman and our new UK correspondent <laughs> of the Savage Lovecast, Magnum subscriber. You can find her on Twitter where she talks about politics, the news, sometimes sex, and often cats at RM Cunliffe, which is spelled C-U-N-L-I-F-F-E. Thanks again, Rachel. Thanks, Dan. Hi, Dan. 41-year-old straight male married with two kids that are four and eight years old. We've been together for 10 years, married for eight, and we married as vanilla hetero straight lovers but over the last six years or so i'm not that anymore but she is and i've talked to her about it and she's always very gracious with um, listening to what i have to say she's even gone to a sex party with me but she really wasn't into that we experiment uh, in the bedroom with soft bdsm and toys and lingerie but None of that sticks. She doesn't really want to try any of the things we we do again. I've talked to her for years about opening the relationship, but it just doesn't seem like she's comfortable with that. And she doesn't want it for herself, so I don't want to push it on her for myself. And it's causing an increasing frustration sexually in me. I really want to just explore sex and and the world of sex in all things, BDSM and group play and whatever it might bring. And she doesn't really want to, and I'm not sure where to go anymore. We're obviously very tied to each other, and I don't want to cheat on her. I don't want to 
be forceful about opening the relationship because that doesn't work. And as you say, sex wins. And I don't want sex to win at the collateral damage of our relationship um, by cheating or whatever. So I, I also don't want to keep it in my pants and just live in silent sexual frustration. So if you have any advice on how to explore this conundrum that'd be great we could but we would both listen so essentially what you're asking me to do here is help you and the wife reconcile important differences differences that may be hard if not impossible to reconcile also known as irreconcilable differences i'm not saying you should get divorced that's one of the reasons people get divorced they get cited and divorced irreconcilable differences but yeah, something's going to have to give here. And you, on the one hand, say you don't want to force your wife into opening the relationship, at least on your end. And you want to pressure the wife to do things that she doesn't want to do more than once and may not even want to do that one time. But you also don't want to keep it in your pants. You also don't want to simmer there in sexual frustration. And so what do you do? Well, you either live in sexual frustration for the rest of your life or you force this issue. Now may be a bad time though, I gotta say, to force this issue. You have young children. It is a commonly observed fact, practically a cliche about a lot of sexually adventurous women, about a lot of people, a lot of straight couples, opposite sex couples involved in the swinging scene that they came to it when their children were grown, when their children were older teenagers at least. So the fact that your wife right now, when your children are very young, four and eight, I think you said, isn't interested in sex clubs or swinging or taking these risks or having these adventures with you kind of tracks. You've put it in her head that you would like to have these adventures and you would like to have them with her. But right now, these kinds of sexual adventures may be in conflict with a certain kind of conservatism that a lot of people experience when their children are young because keeping the home together, keeping things on track and regular and not going out on crazy adventures seems to be a way to keep things on track and regular often is the more appealing option. That option isn't going to work if you can safely predict that in what, a year, two years, three years, you're going to crack under the pressure of your sexual frustration and wind up cheating on your wife. You say that your wife is going to listen to this with you. And yet from the way you describe your conversations, it doesn't sound like you've made it clear to her. Maybe it's clear to her now that she's heard your call, heard your question, just how important this is to you. It also doesn't sound like you've been willing to possibly take yes for an answer Sometimes spouses aren't aggrieved when the husband or the wife wants it open on their side to go out and explore something sexually that the person who stayed home isn't interested in. Sometimes that person is less aggrieved and more relieved. If you want to go to these sex clubs, if you want to have some kinky sexual adventures and you're able to do it discreetly and you're not going to date anybody and that's something your wife may not be psyched about, but is willing to tolerate so that you're happy and that, you know, this frustration of yours doesn't become a 
cancer that eats away at your relationship and undermines, again, the marriage, the security of the home, that stability that you're providing your kids right now, she might be willing to sign off on that. Not delightedly, not ecstatically, but willingly. And sometimes that's a yes that you have to take for an answer. Hearing from a spouse, you know what? I'd rather you didn't want to do this, but if you got to do this, do it. I just don't want to hear about it. I don't want to know about it. I don't want our kids to know about it. I don't want you doing it with any of our friends. Be discreet. Don't humiliate me. And yeah, do what you need to do in order to stay married to me and stay sane. I say that a lot. Do what you need to do in order to stay married and stay sane. That's not always something that a person hears from an amoral sex advice podcaster. Sometimes that's a thing a person hears from their spouse. If your wife is willing or able to say that to you, okay, go out there, have a couple of sexual adventures to tide you over maybe until the point five years from now, 10 years from now, when your wife may be more open to sexual adventures herself. Hi, Jan. Late 20s, mostly straight, demisexual, demiromantic woman on the West Coast. A few months ago, I joined a special interest club to meet like-minded people, not necessarily doing so with the intention of dating, but not closed off to it either. At first, we were meeting on Zoom, but we're back meeting in person again. And I've fully realized that I have a crush on one of my fellow club members. After meeting him in person and spending hours talking after one of our recent meetings. It might also be pertinent to note that while we were talking after this meeting, he made a couple of very specific references to being single and having gone on bad dates. And we bonded over that as I'm basically in the same situation. Being both demisexual and demiromantic is honestly rare to meet someone that I truly connect with, but I'm slowly building a connection with this person and I just can't get him out of my head. Over the past two years, I've been on several dating apps with varying degrees of luck and have had a couple of relationships with nothing that has stuck. And I simply can't remember the last time I've been this excited about someone or have had such burgeoning strong feelings. It's been years. But I do have some qualms. Firstly, I don't want him to think that I joined this group just to get with him. I truly didn't as my interest in our subject matter is genuine. And I only realized my feelings for him a few months into joining that right away upon joining the group. And secondly, if we do end up dating, but if for some reason it doesn't work out, I wonder if things would be awkward at our group meeting. I'm so torn between pursuing something with this person that I do truly feel connected to and wanting to play it safe. What should I do, Dan? You should take a risk. You join this group to meet people. You met someone. You've bonded over the fact that you're both single, you're demisexual, demiromantic, perhaps he is as well. You forged a connection. He may be hanging back knowing if you've told him that you're demisexual and demiromantic, wanting to give you a little bit of space and time to determine whether there's that emotional bond. A demisexual person doesn't experience sexual attraction unless there's an emotional connection. And if you told him you're demisexual and he's a good and decent guy, the kind of guy that you might want to date or be with, I know if somebody told me that I was interested in, told me that they were demisexual, I would make myself available to them. I'd hang out with them. I'd get to know them. I'd let them get to know me. But I would very much consider that a ball in their court, that if they began to experience sexual attraction to me, got over the demi hurdle that I would hear from them. They wouldn't be waiting for me to guess. If he's a good and decent guy, he's not going to guess. He's going to wait. 
He's going to wait for you to make the move, for you to indicate to him that you have begun to experience that sexual attraction, that that bond is there. So you're going to have to tell him, yes, it might screw things up. If you guys go out on a few more dates or you begin to officially date and things don't work out as things typically don't. We date a lot of people. You've dated in the past. You know almost every relationship you're ever going to be in is going to fail until one doesn't. And you don't know which one it's going to be until that one doesn't fail. So there's a good chance that this won't work out. Get out in front of that. You say to him, look, I'm interested in dating you. If you're interested in dating me, I really feel this strong connection. If it doesn't work out, let's both be grownups about that. Let's not ruin this group for each other. Let's pledge that if things don't work out, we'll power through the awkwardness and we'll be decent and kind and civil to each other and be friends again, as we were at the start, if the romantic thing doesn't work out. No guarantee that you're going to be friends or civil if it doesn't work out, but it really ups the odds that you will be. You'll have to live up to that promise, as will he. Sometimes making that promise in advance really does, people do come through. People who maybe, you know, in situations where they dated someone and it didn't work out in the past, were shitty or morose or silent if, you know, they were in the same class together or they worked together, they were thrown together for some other reason. That same person in a different context with another person, a different relationship where they promised to be the grown up, to be civil and polite and kind if it didn't work out, will rise to the occasion and be civil and polite and kind. So take the risk, ask him out, make him promise. If it doesn't work out, you'll both be grown ups about it. You promise to and be civil and polite and kind and then see where it goes. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I'm a college student calling from California. I, uh, love using vibrators during sex and I even with PIP I love using a good vibrator it kind of is the only way I can come and is the way I like to come um during sex and my partner is so great he he loves it too the problem is that every vibrator I've ever owned is pretty loud like to the point where kind of got to turn on music or like a loud ass fan (laughs) so your roommates can't hear you through the walls that are probably a little thin. So I'm looking for a recommendation on a quieter vibrator, like one that is about the level of a conversation or quieter. I like the bullet vibrators, but not the little ones. I like the ones that are about like four or five inches long and have a little little beef to them too. <laughs> um, and maybe this just isn't possible. Maybe quiet vibrators are not meant to be. But if anyone has a recommendation, I am all ears. Joining me to help tackle this question, Sarah Dysock, owner of Early to Bed Chicago's feminist sex shop and frequent Savage Lovecast guest. Hey, Sarah, welcome back to the show. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. So I heard this question, immediately thought of you and your whole crew at Early to Bed. Are there powerful, quiet vibrators out there? Do you have a recommendation for my caller? I do have a recommendation, but I always like to start with a caveat when people talk about quiet vibrators, because every vibrator makes noise. If a vibrator says it's silent, they're lying to you. So I think we have to all go into this with our eyes wide open, so to speak, knowing that. They will make some noise. Now, that said, there are small, powerful vibrators that I think are quite quiet. Like, basically, if I can turn it on, 
hold it down sort of by my hips and not really hear it, that's when I think something is quiet. So we do carry a couple at the store and you can find ones online. Um, there's one called the Rabbit Bullet by Jeju, which I think is really quiet. It's a staff and customer favorite. And a new one that's super powerful, that's small and quiet called the Amp Bullet, like A-M-P Bullet. I also think it's just really important when you're looking for a quiet vibrator to look for one that is small and either coated in silicone or made of silicone because that silicone will absorb some of the noise. Um, and also if toys are rechargeable, they tend to be more quiet because you don't have batteries in there rattling around making noise ah. in my experience. You know, listening to the caller, I was thinking about all those people that we hear from who go out in public with remote controlled vibrating plugs in them <laughs> or in their pants and their panties and are using them in public and aren't ever, it seems, concerned about being overheard, usually because they're in a noisy place. They're in a restaurant or bar, the music's playing. Wouldn't that be an option for the caller? Crank the tunes if you're worried about the neighbors hearing your vibrator. And also you shouldn't be worried about your neighbors hearing your vibrator. Well, sure. If, in, a, in a perfect world, we're all sexually free and all that. Although you might want to think about their comfort level of hearing you, your vibrator. But music is a great, you know, it's a great addition to sex under most circumstances anyways. And so I think that that's a great way to make it more quiet. Also thinking about the fact that it might sound loud to you when it's on your body, but that somebody on the other side of the wall may not hear it at all, right? Like you could do a little test in your house, like turn on the vibrator and go in the other room and see if you can hear it. Because oftentimes I think it's louder. You think it's louder than it really is to somebody who's not actively using it with you. So the caller says they went online, they found some ads for vibrators that marketed themselves as quiet and then got them and felt that they were loud. Do you think she's just getting conned by big vibrator? Or do you think she just wants one that's <laughs> silent and any noise is going to be a problem because she has a noise hang up? Maybe, maybe you say go in with eyes wide open. Maybe she needs to go in with noise canceling headphones on. Well, yeah, or give them to your roommates. I think that I think that people overpromise quiet. I will be perfectly honest. I think there's a lot of people. The fact that anyone says their vibrators are silent is, I think, you know, unconscionable, conscionable. But I think that also anyone can say their vibrator is quiet. What are they basing that against? I think that looking for a reputable sex shop that might actually stand around holding vibrators in their hands and listening to them, which is like what we do. Um, it might be more reliable than just trusting what you're seeing on the internet. So um, you're going to, every vibrator is going to, like I said, going to make some sort of noise. Kind of have to do it, just experiment on your own. But I think that if you ask the right questions to the right people, you might be able to find one that is quieter. And you head out to your local feminist brick and mortar or dick and mortar sex toy shop where you can pick up the vibrator before you order it, you know, the, the floor sample. Uh, and hear how loud it is in person before it's arriving at your house in the box. That is, I think that's a, if you have access to a in-store sex shop, you should absolutely do that and, you know, see the huge difference that they have. And, and you can tell for yourself before you buy. Sarah Dysock, owner of Early to Bed Chicago's Feminist Sex Shop. You guys have a brick and mortar operation. We do. You can cut, come and turn everything on before you buy it so you know what it sounds like. Everybody out there, if you're in Chicago or close, or if there's a feminist sex shop near you with a brick and mortar operation, please patronize them, especially 
at this time. I guarantee everybody at a feminist sex shop is going to be vaxxed and masked and you will be safe. And you can try that vibrator out or you not try it out. You can give it a listen before you mm. take it home. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. Mid-50s cis straightish woman from the West Coast. I'm newly divorced after 30 years together. And with COVID waning, I'm starting to date and I'm meeting a lot of partnered men in their 40s who are in sexless marriages. Now, I'm giving these guys the benefit of the doubt because, of course, I only have their side of the story. But for argument's sake, let's say it's true that the passion, lust, desire, physical contact, etc. are gone. But they don't want to blow up their lives, disrupt their children, etc. and don't want to have to give up sex. My marriage was pretty awful for the last 10 years, emotionally abusive, no sex, and I was monogamous by default. But now that I'm out and in good working order, I have zero intention of getting into another monogamous commitment. I'm looking for great sex, mutual respect, fun, and friendship with a few men. And that is what I found. However, they are all married and not ethically non-monogamous. Believe me, I would much rather that they were poly or open, but for whatever reason, that is not who shows up in my feed. So my questions, can I call myself ethically non-monogamous if the men I'm involved with are cheating? I mean, I think I'm the perfect person for them to cheat with. I have no desire whatsoever for them to leave their relationships for me. I talk to them about being ethically non-monogamous and using their words with their partners around openness, sexual needs, etc. And I practice safe sex. But maybe this is just my rationalization. And second, am I letting down the side? And by side, I mean the sisterhood, these other women Am I an asshole because I am helping their spouses deceive them? Again, my choice would be to be truly ethically non-monogamous, but that's not what has shown up for me. And I don't want to pass up the sex and wait for that. After my marriage, I want to make up for lost time, and I'm in my sexual prime. And yes, I've settled on a couple of men right now, but there are way more out there that are available. I'm not bragging, I'm just stating a fact. Help! You're going to get me in trouble with this kind of question. It exists in my philosophy, ethical cheating. Sometimes cheating is the least worst option for all involved. That makes people's heads explode when I say that, because people have this idea that somebody's out cheating and somebody's at home crying or somebody who's being cheated on is being cheated out of anything that they want or desire or value. And that's not always the case. There are people in marriages, that it's better for both partners, maybe better for kids, for that marriage to continue. And it makes it possible for the person who's out there cheating to stay in that marriage if they're getting their sexual needs met elsewhere, sexual needs that aren't being met at home. I'm going to go with you there. For the sake of argument, you say, let's assume that these guys are telling you the truth when they say the passion, love, and desire is gone and the marriages are sexless. That is often the case. I didn't invent the idea or concept of sexless marriages. This isn't something I've made up to rationalize cheating. There are a lot of sexless marriages out there. And it's not always the case that someone in a sexless marriage who's seeking sex elsewhere didn't do the work, didn't make a good faith effort to repair the marriage, restore that sexual connection, discuss with their partner the possibility of having an ethically non-monogamous relationship, opening it up. And that person may have been told that their partner insists on monogamy, even in the context of a sexually, or even in the context of a sexless marriage, insists on monogamy. And so, yeah, in my philosophy, I allow for 
sometimes married people are out there doing what they need to do, cheating, in order to stay married and stay sane, and that can be a good thing. So long as they're careful, as long as they're discreet, so long as they're telling the truth, if not to their spouse, to their other partners. All right. If that's possible, if that exists in my philosophy, then it also would have to perforce exist in my philosophy that they have to have sex with someone. They have to do that thing that they're doing to stay married and stay sane with someone. And if it's good for someone in a sexless marriage to get their needs met outside the marriage discreetly, if not completely ethically, then it's good for someone to help them get those needs met. And that's where you come in or you get come in. (laughs) Yeah, it's ethically compromised. It's messy. It's not perfect. It's not ideal. It's non-monogamy. You couldn't describe it as ethical non-monogamy. And in one way, you're letting down the side. You're helping these men cheat on their wives. On the other hand, you're throwing yourself in front of the train. You're not someone who's interested in landing a partner, finding a boyfriend. You're not going to make demands on these men for time or attention or support or a commitment that they can't give you that would entail taking something away from the spouse at home. So you are a good person for these guys if they're telling you the truth to cheat with. That doesn't make the cheating good. It doesn't make it ethical. It makes it, I guess, better than these men going out there and finding or risking getting involved sexually with women who want more than you want. So, yeah, like I said at the top of my answer, I'm going to get in trouble for this. But yeah, you have my blessing. You're doing, if not God's work, you're doing someone's work here. And uh, yeah, all right. The lines are open. Everybody can call and yell at me now. Hi, Dan. So I hooked up with a guy last week and for the first time, and we were texting the next day. And he mentioned he had an OnlyFans and a dirty Twitter account. So, of course, he sent me the link. And alongside all the normal fare on there, he's got a lot of exhibitionist videos. You know, one with him with his ass out in a public restroom with the caption, come fuck me at the car dealership. Another video of him walking along a public parks boardwalk with his ass and dick out. And then there's a video of him jacking off onto the welcome mat of his entryway for all of his neighborhood to possibly see. So looking at these clips, I couldn't help but worry about him, considering all the Fox News and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert fear-mongering about evil gay grooming pedophiles. All it would take is one Karen lumbering by to ruin this guy's life. You know, not to mention, what if some kid did unintentionally get exposed to one of his exhibitionist moments? So regardless, I was a bit turned off by all this and tried to politely cancel our future plans by explaining the exhibitionism was a bit too wild for me. And then he, he posted our chat without identifying info, as a screenshot on his Twitter to call out the prudes of the world. Petty, but I guess as Nora Ephron would say, everything is copy, so I don't I don't blame him for using our chat in that way. So mostly I'm just looking for your opinion on all of this. You know, am I the asshole for being turned off by all that and immediately thinking the worst, you know, that this guy is going to get arrested for indecent exposure or worse? I think what happened, your, your discomfort with what he told you, what he showed you, his exhibitionist OnlyFans and Twitter account wasn't so much about prudery, but about wanting to be with someone with good judgment. Now, to be fair to this guy, maybe he goes to great lengths to ensure that no one is going to walk by when he's jacking off on the 
in the entryway to his apartment or showing his ass on the boardwalk and his dick on the boardwalk at the beach or pantsing himself, showing his ass in a public restroom. Maybe he's got a friend who helps run his OnlyFans and runs interference for him and is out there guarding the door. Maybe he shot that jack-off video outside his front door at 3.30 in the morning after peering up and down the street to make sure there were no Karens or kids lumbering by. But yeah, probably not. You know, most exhibitionists are turned on by risk. Most exhibitionists are comfortable with the idea of somebody out there who didn't want to see that, seeing that. And yeah, they are risking arrest when they do that. And if you're going to be involved in the sex life or romantic life of somebody who takes those sorts of risks, even if you don't participate, you don't make those videos with him. If you were their partner, yeah. If it shit hit the fan and the police are at the door, that's a nightmare you have to deal with too. Even if you were just a casual sex partner and they were posting this shit, who knows when that knock's going to come on the door. Even if you weren't boyfriends, even if you didn't live together, if you weren't married. And I just think subconsciously part of your brain was like, yeah, no, I don't need that. I don't want to be with someone whose kink they roll out that they indulge in and enjoy in such a risky way. So yeah, you're allowed to call it to say you're not interested in seeing this person anymore for this reason. You didn't necessarily have to tell him that this was the reason you only hooked up once. Then he showed you his only fans and then you weren't interested in hooking up with him again. You didn't have to yuck his admittedly risky yum by telling him you disapproved or you thought he was being reckless or you were concerned for his safety physically, legally. You didn't have to say any of that. You barely knew this guy, but you said it and he had the reaction that he had. He felt judged and shamed and he's allowed to feel that way. And he's allowed to say so publicly. And a lot of people post screenshots of chit chats with, you know, potential people they were going to hook up with on grinder or, or screenshots of text messages they've exchanged with somebody who pissed them off. That does seem to be a thing people do a risk. We know we're running when we create that digital record with someone. And I think it's an asshole thing to do, but so long as you don't include somebody's identifying information, ugh, it's not as assholey as it could be. Anyway, clearly you weren't a good match for this guy. You weren't going to be his wingman. You weren't interested being the person running interference for him the next time he wanted to do a photo shoot in public with his dick out. And subconsciously, I think you didn't want to run the risk of being in the room with him when the cops showed up, when he got in trouble for this shit, which I'm not saying he definitely will or inevitably will, but there's a good chance he might. And, you know, when you zoom out to 30,000 feet and think about this for a second, for most of recorded human history, we had very little privacy. People fucked in caves in front of other people. People lived 10 to a room and had to find a spot off in the woods to fuck or get it on. As in Midsummer Night's Dream by William fucking Shakespeare. And there was always a chance that some 16th century Karen might come along and see that or some cave kid might wake up, roll over and see that. And yet we survived and 
the human race didn't collapse or go extinct. And I'd like to think that people even today are resilient enough that seeing something you didn't want to see that you find offensive, that was inappropriate, as unpleasant as that might be, is something that you can and will survive. The thing, of course, that a lot of exhibitionists don't take into consideration or do take into consideration and selfishly set aside is that there are people out there who've been stalked or harassed or sexually assaulted or flashed and were traumatized by that. And so since you can't know who's going to walk by or come into that bathroom or appear on your doorstep when you're having a wank, you are taking the risk of re-traumatizing someone of making someone feel afraid. And yet the kind of exhibitionism that this guy is engaged in, it's not the same thing as pulling it out on the bus, sitting down next to somebody and having a wank when they can't escape. It's not driving up next to somebody and asking them to walk over to your car to give you directions. And then you're having a wank or your dicks out. This is a kind of performative exhibitionism online that this guy can control for not showing it off to anybody who doesn't want to see it. Anybody who goes to his OnlyFans, anybody who goes to his Twitter wants to see it. He's not exposing himself in those venues to people who don't want to see it. So I wouldn't class him with those kinds of selfish, asshole, sexually aggressive exhibitionists who are seeking out people to make them feel afraid and unsafe in public. Still, you're right. He is running a risk. All right, before we get to listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. JD Swo tweets concerning the heteroflexible vibration lover in episode 808 who wants to find partners more comfortable with the way she orgasms. She should move by pan folks to the top of her search, more likely to be open to various options, not just the PIV race that straight folks tend to focus on. Good advice, JD Swo. Thanks for writing. Joe Lilly, 2016 tweets. Thanks at Fake Dan Savage for pointing out that some men in hetero relationships are oral bottoms slash subs and aren't interested in receiving blowjobs. I'll go down all day long, but to me, the joy is in giving, not receiving. You're welcome, Joe. And I'm right down there with you. Oral subs forever. And Dr. Stacy Hannum tweets, hey, at OED, time to give Dan Savage his due and put pegging and derivatives into the dictionary. He makes a compelling etymological case for you in episode 810 of the Savage Lovecast. Come on, if Texas street preachers are using the term to scare people, it's not fringe anymore. Thanks for rattling the OED's cage, Dr. Hannum, and you too, KT, and tap, 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 and everyone else who tweeted at the editors of the Oxford English Dictionary about pegging. And once we get pegging in there, we move on to Santorum. All right, thanks to everybody who tweeted about the show last week. If you want me to read your tweet on next week's episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now, listener response calls. Hi, this is a call in response to the apparent outrage over your interview with Christine Emba. I just wanted to say that I enjoyed the interview and I'm looking forward to reading her book. I think it can be easy to confuse genuine concern for the way young people are engaging with each other sexually with inciting a moral panic about casual sex in the youths. But the reality is we can be sex positive and believe that people should be free to have the kind of sex they want to have while recognizing that most young people and especially young women are not having sex that feels fulfilling to them. I'm an empowerment self-defense instructor who spends a lot of time talking to teens about sex and reading about what the research says about sex among college students. And Emba is right, consent is a really low bar. 
We're doing a terrible job as a society of fostering bodily ownership and agency among girls and women. And without that, consent is almost meaningless. If you aren't familiar with your own body and either don't know what turns you on or don't think sex is really about you or your body is really for you, then you're going to say yes to a lot of sex that isn't about you or for you and may not even be wanted by you. On top of that, we seem to have replaced the dominant Christian culture stigma toward casual sex with a stigma toward love and intimacy. Despite most young people reporting that they want more connection in their sexual encounters, they seem to view catching feelings like, like it's a disease. And they're so afraid of vulnerability that many of them feel the need to get shit-faced drunk just to get naked with someone. And once again, this mostly hurts young straight women whose casual sex partners are less likely to treat them with empathy and less concerned for their pleasure. So I just wanted to say thanks for having Emba on and keep provoking. This is in response to the caller who wants to want to suck her boyfriend's dick, but the patriarchy is getting in her way. Caller, you said that your boyfriend loves you, but you never mentioned how you feel about him. From the context, it seems like you don't trust him. At least you don't trust that he's on your side against the patriarchy. If he's on team sexist asshole, which he very well may be, then it makes good sense to me that you wouldn't want to suck his cock. And I think you should just let him suck his own dick if that's the case. However, if he's a genuinely good guy, that is if he gets it and is actively working to be your ally, then I hope you let him join your team. If that happens and you want to get your face down in his crotch i hope you do what you want down there not what you think he wants or what's sexy or what other people do because if you are enjoying yourself that is going to be the hottest thing for everyone involved and i want to point out that the possibilities include you dominating him even with his dick in your mouth Having my most sensitive parts literally in the jaws, in the maw of another person, that is not a position where I'm feeling powerful. Hi, Dan. As I see, I'm calling in response to the caller that uh, called about the uh, blowjobs and patriarchy. I'm in such disagreement with what Dan you said about being willing to submit, although, I mean, maybe it works for some people. I am... Uh, not submissive, never will be. It's not my thing. But I definitely understand also this connection between patriarchy and resistance to blowjobs. But, caller, I have another idea for you. I love giving head. And to me, a beautiful hard cock is a candy. And it's delicious. And I am a queen. And he's in my power. And I'm giving this pleasure that I have. And... There's nothing submissive about it, not even for a fucking second. And nobody's allowed to call me a slaughter or a cocksucker. And I'm a queen, and his dick is mine. I, I claim it. I eat it. I love it. Fuck the patriarchy. Give me the candy. And we're going to leave it where? We're going to leave it right there. Got a question for next week's Lovecast or something to say about something I said on this week's Lovecast? Use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us and leave a message at 206-302-2064. If you missed Hump when it played in San Francisco, we are in Oakland at the new Parkway Theater this weekend. 
We're also at Merrill's Roxy Cinema in Burlington, Vermont on Saturday. Go to humpfilmfest.com to grab your tickets or streaming links if you want to watch at home. Also, unsolicited dick pic senders. Why do you do it? We're looking for a few brave men, a few more brave men to tell us why and hopefully why you stopped. Still looking for a decency day gift for that special someone on your decency day list, National Decency Day, May 14th, coming right up. It's not too late to order a fuck first mug or a GGG coffee mug for the most decent people you know at savage.love slash shop. Follow me on Twitter at fake Dan Savage. Follow Rachel Cunliffe on Twitter at RM Cunliffe, that's C-U-N-L-I-F-F-E, and follow Sarah Dysock on Twitter at Sarah D. That's S-E-A. R-A-H-D. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. I'll be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.